It's Thursday, August 29th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. More news on the thousands of lawsuits brought forth by state and local governments hoping to hold drug manufacturers accountable for the opioid crisis. Oxycontin maker Purdue Pharma and its owners, the Sackler family, are in talks to settle the cases in a deal valued between $10 and $12 billion. Sarah Randazzo, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us with details of the deal. Next, the doorbell camera company Ring has quietly partnered with more than 400 police forces across the country to gain access to homeowners' cameras, helping to form a new neighborhood watch. Privacy experts have sounded the alarm on giving police more surveillance access and contributing to an endless stream of suspicion. Drew Harwell, AI reporter for The Washington Post, joins us for more on the rapid growth of this program. Finally, the CDC is investigating the link between vaping and a mysterious lung disease in teens and young adults. Health officials are looking into 193 cases in 22 states that all have one commonality. All the patients reported vaping in the weeks and months before they got sick, and we also have one death linked to e-cigarettes. Rachel Feltman, articles editor at Popular Science, joins us for what to know. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Do you know whether OxyContin is more powerful or less powerful a drug than morphine? Depends what you mean by powerful. If powerful means potency, absolutely. It is twice as potent as morphine. Joining us now is Sarah Randazzo, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Sure thing. It was just a few days ago that Johnson & Johnson was ordered to pay $572 million for its role in the opioid crisis in Oklahoma. Now we're getting word that Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin, is looking at a deal to settle. There's about 2,000 opioid cases that are being lumped together. It was going to be happening in October in a new trial in Cleveland. And now it seems that Purdue Pharma wants to settle out of this in a deal that's valued between 10 and $12 billion. Sarah, what do we know about this? So we've known for some time that Purdue has been in settlement talks and was considering bankruptcy and that the deal that's potentially on the table would basically put Purdue into bankruptcy. It would turn over the company into what's called a public benefit corporation run by trustees. The current owners, the Sacklers, would step away. And so in the course of all this, the Sacklers would contribute $3 billion from their personal funds and then all the money that's in the company, both that it has now and the profits that it would get for products going forward would also be turned over to the plaintiffs for the settlement. I mean, I have to imagine that the Johnson & Johnson ruling that happened earlier in the week has to put a little extra pressure on this since they were found liable in, the, in that case and are having to pay up money. It just seems to me that it puts pressure on Purdue Pharma and other companies that are being sued to start settling. And that's really the dynamic in, in every piece of litigation that's interesting to watch is even when companies feel strongly that they're in the right and didn't do anything wrong, there's always the equation of do we take this to trial and risk what a jury or a judge will say about it or do we just settle and have finality and a number that we've agreed to up front that we know we can pay at this point. There's been this two-pronged approach of try to settle and then we're going to work up these trials to put pressure on the settlements. And so right now it's all coming to a head to some extent. You mentioned that the Purdue Pharma would be turned into a public benefit trust corporation. How does that work? Because 
they're not going to stop the company from making Oxycontin and selling it. So they're still going to be making money off of it. And then and it's just confusing. How, how does that work? From what we understand so far, it would continue to be an ongoing operation, at least for maybe seven to 10 years. But essentially, any money it makes would go back into this ongoing settlement pot of money. But it is a bit ironic, maybe is the right word. The amount of money they get is dependent on the continued sales of Oxycontin, which is the drug that um, issue in this litigation. And so it, it is definitely a unique uh, thing that I, I can't think of a real corollary. There's been other things in the past, like asbestos, trusts, and different things, but they all had pretty different elements. Purdue has sold more than $35 billion worth of Oxycontin. That is a ton of money. Part of all of this settlement would also include things to help treat addiction and support those programs as well. And I think Purdue has already kind of started doing some of that, trying to maybe change the tune of their name, saying, hey, we are trying to help out. We do recognize it's a problem. They've been doing some of that already, right? That's right. Yeah. And they have some drugs, both that they already make and that are in development that would be around the addiction and opioid dependence treatment space. And so, yeah, part of this would be that they would continue to make those drugs and turn them over to the communities, you know, give them I don't know if donate's the right word, but part of this deal would include drugs that would be given to the communities that would be helping for people who are addicted or having you know, overdose situations. What does Purdue look like as a company right now? Because uh, from my reading, it, it, they took out their whole sales force. I, a bunch of managers have been leaving. What does that company structure look like? So, you know, there's still a company with uh, you know a few hundred employees. They still continue to make and manufacture and produce drugs. I think there's even some drugs in development. Uh, maybe to a lesser extent. So they're still trucking along, but they don't have a sales force anymore. So it's almost passive sales of Oxycontin at this point. And how does the Sackler family figure into all this? They've owned Purdue Pharma since it started. And I think they've even been named in some of the lawsuits regarding this. Yeah, that's right. So individual family members started to get named. They, they weren't named initially, but as a couple of years of this litigation have gone on and more documents have come out, various cities and states and counties have started naming Sackler family members individually as well. But so under this proposed deal, if it gets adopted, the Sacklers would essentially exit ownership and they would pay their $3 billion up front. And they would also potentially sell an international operation that they own called Mundi Pharma that's legally different than Purdue Pharma, but it's essentially a group of drug companies around the world. And so there's talk as part of this proposed deal that they would sell Mundi Pharma and money raised in that could also go towards this pot of, of settlement money. And so it would essentially mean them exiting the business completely potentially in the coming years. Sarah Randazzo, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. We have green cameras in our community, and we understand the value of those cameras in helping us solve crimes. I was amazed how many cameras were just in our neighborhoods to begin with. As police officers, we cannot be everywhere, so we rely on our citizens to use the Neighbors app. Joining us now is Drew Harwell, reporter covering artificial intelligence for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Drew. Thank you. We're going to be talking about the Ring doorbell cameras. Ring has partnered now with 400 police forces across the country, extending the reach of their surveillance. Through this partnership, law enforcement can request 
to view the footage of any person who's using the ring camera. The person does have to give consent for it. But whenever things like this happen, there's always growing privacy concerns and, and the future and what's going to happen if these things keep expanding. We've talked about this before on the podcast. I think the last time we talked about it, there was about 200 partnerships, but now it's doubled at least. So there's 400 yeah. law enforcement agencies partnered with them. Tell us a little bit more about this. So you can just tell, like, there's been such a huge expansion of those participating agencies. And they're all over the country. They're around L.A. They're around a ton of different metro areas across the country. And they're changing sort of the power dynamic for how police and homeowners can interact. So there are some limits on what police can request in terms of video. You know, they have to draw a box around the area they're looking for. They have to set a specific time range. And the homeowners can still say no. They can opt out of providing that footage. So there is some amount of control. But, you know, the worry from privacy and civil liberties advocates is like, are we giving too much away? Are we setting up this kind of surveillance infrastructure where police can see a ton about not just sort of our neighborhoods, but our own homes and how it looks like when people come home and people visit and there are new people in the neighborhood. So, you know, every time there's a new camera or a new microphone or a new sensor in this residential space that we've never really had it in before, there's concern that you're edging toward this feature big brother landscape where you're never really too far from being recorded or being seen. And the company does kind of buy into this perceived need for more self-surveillance, you know, the fear aspect. Somebody is suspicious around your neighborhood. You want to know who it is. But this kind of workaround going through Ring and partnering with law enforcement, it's different. The scrutiny is different as if it was a program that wholly came from the government or your state officials. That's one point people have been making is that if the police required every homeowner to have a camera on their doorstep that they could look at at any time, there'd be a huge amount of public blowback, right? In this scenario, this is a company that offers a product that is convenient, that allows people to understand who's coming in and out of their house. So we're looking at kind of the business side of this equation, and yet the same sort of privacy problems are still there. And so the fact that kind of Ring and police are are working closely together and the fact that Ring wants to forge more partnerships down the road, you know, it just raises these questions of what kinds of limits are there? What kinds of rules should the police and these private companies follow when it comes to gathering data on normal people's travels and normal people's lives? A lot of the action that takes place with these two partnerships between Ring and law enforcement is on the Neighbors app. This is the app that People can upload their videos to and, uh, you know, you can say a suspicious guy walking around the neighborhood, things like that. What's the breakdown of how much people are posting there? You know, is it all crime related? Is it, you know, how, how does that break out? So it depends on the neighborhood, but I think like a third of the stuff that goes on the neighbors, which is their, you know, big sort of crime related social network actually ends up being, I had an unknown visitor at my house or there's been like a suspicious incident. And, you know, in some cases, this is like some person coming up to your door and taking a box from your doorstep. But in some occasions, it's like kids going to a door to sell candy. And, you know, from camera's standpoint, they're getting all of that. And so it's really up to the homeowner of what they want to do with that information. So you'll see on neighbors, so a third of the posts are suspicious activity. You've got maybe a fifth of the posts that are like lost pets or so. And then pretty much everything else is for actual criminal reports. Right. You spoke to a police officer with the Norfolk Police Department in Virginia, and he kind of positioned this perfect example why a lot of people might have a problem with this. He said, 
this app is great because a neighbor could post something suspicious and then everybody can watch that in real time and be on the lookout for somebody. But Ring, for their part, would remove a video like that because there's nothing specific about it. There's no uh, attempted criminal activity or something that would be a cause for concern. So this is kind of that fine line that everybody has to ride when they're posting stuff. And that's actually kind of a change from Ring's past policy, where they used to kind of let anybody post whatever they want. They started to reel that in and kind of force people to only be posting stuff where there is, you know, a real legitimate reason for suspicion or a real crime happening. Because, you know, in a lot of the examples we've seen, it ends up being young kids who are maybe just asking to use the phone or something. You know, people will see that on their ring and then post that onto these public feeds. And so, you know, if you're the parent of that kid, you may not appreciate having your child sort of insinuated as being a criminal and having their face put onto this public social network. And of course, there's the dimension that we can't ignore, which is that a lot of this stuff overlaps with racial profiling. When we think about neighborhood watches and, and kind of who, which kinds of people are deemed not to belong in any one specific neighborhood. Overall, though, police do seem pretty happy with this partnership. It does give them a new tool to use when they're trying to look for somebody, but it it seems like they're all good with this. From a lot of the officers I've talked to, yeah, they are good with this because in the past they'd have to go knock on a bunch of doors, hope people are help are helpful, and maybe not be anywhere closer to an answer. Now they can hit a couple buttons and get back a lot of evidence they may never have really been able to search for in the first place. Drew Harwell covering artificial intelligence for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My experience taking care of patients with vaping-induced lung injury has been mainly in our ICU. We're seeing patients who have a wide variety of lung diseases. Some are fairly innocuous and some are pretty life-threatening, which we've, we've seen. Joining us now is Rachel Feltman, Articles Editor at Popular Science. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thanks for having me. There's been some interesting stories going around about vaping and mysterious lung disease reported in teens and young adults. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention right now is urging healthcare providers and other state officials to report cases of unexplained vaping-associated pulmonary illnesses. They're currently investigating 193 cases of lung disease in about 22 states, and it's again signaling the alarm to the dangers of smoking and vaping specifically right now. Rachel, what do we know about this? So we know that the CDC is concerned and is investigating a possible link between these cases of lung damage and vaping. As of a few days ago, there was a message to healthcare providers where they said that all the patients they were looking at who had this illness had reported vaping in the weeks and months before they got sick, and that the connecting factor did not seem to be marijuana, that some patients were using various forms of marijuana, but not all the same forms and not in a way that provided that same troubling correlation that vaping and e-cigarettes did specifically. So for now, all we know is that surprisingly young people are getting, in some cases, irreversible and potentially deadly lung damage, and they are getting it in higher numbers than we would expect for that age group. And e-cigarettes and vapes seem to be at least a connected factor. We have not yet said, here is exactly what the problem is, and here is what it's causing. But 
It's not surprising that vapes and e-cigarettes could cause this kind of damage. And I think from a lot of public health care workers and a lot of medical experts, from their perspective, it was just a matter of time before something like this happened. What are the symptoms that people are experiencing? I've heard a bunch of things ranging from shortness of breath uh, all the way to people needing to be put on ventilators to be able to breathe. And we also have health officials in Illinois who said that a patient contracted serious lung disease after vaping, and this is the first death considered to be tied to e-cigarettes. What we're seeing is pretty similar to what we would call popcorn lung because it uh, initially was seen in people who worked in popcorn factories and the chemicals that were used to flavor it, they would inhale them. And it's a gradual onset of cough, shortness of breath, fatigue, vomiting, sometimes diarrhea. And that shortness of breath and, and difficulty breathing can become so severe that people need to be hospitalized, need to be on respirators, can even develop things like pneumonia and then potentially die. And these are things we've seen as occupational diseases, again, hence the name popcorn lung, uh, in a very specific kind of chemical inhalation damage to uh, basically the last branch towards the tiny sacs in our lungs that actually bring oxygen into your blood. The, um, the, and, inter- the interesting thing with these vapes and vape pens and things like that is that when they came on the scene, it was marketed as a way to get away from traditional cigarettes. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, we just really haven't studied these things so much. A lot of where people are centering their thought on this is it all has to do with the, the liquid, the vape juice and the chemicals mm-hmm. that are put in there. They've all been usually approved for you know safe in the human body to be uh, digested but not to be aerosolized and put in through your lungs. So we don't know how these chemicals react that way in the lungs. And that's where a lot of people are thinking that this might be the problem is this cocktail of chemicals that you're inhaling now. So we know that inhaling just about anything that isn't clean air is not good for your lungs. You know, of course, there are degrees. If somebody sprays a can of hairspray, it's not good for their lungs that they inhale some of that, but it's not going to cause serious damage. Then again, you know, if if you are inhaling that constantly day after day, you might start to see some serious long-term health effects. And so the problem that comes in with things like vaping and e-cigarettes is that they are marketed as being safer than traditional cigarettes. And the truth is they haven't existed long enough and we haven't done the right kind of studies on them to know that that is strictly speaking, true. And even if they are safer, I mean, traditional cigarettes are incredibly bad for you. So they could be significantly safer and still not be good for you at all. So as you were saying, in theory, they exist as a smoking cessation aid. But of course, we know that more and more kids who have never smoked traditional cigarettes are vaping and using e-cigs. And so even if there isn't anything shocking in the liquid, there have been some studies on like strange microbial growth in them. It's certainly not well studied or regulated enough for us to feel confident about what is in that liquid. But even if it was all chemicals that were in theory safe for ingestion or inhalation in small amounts, it's just an entirely different scenario for you to be inhaling those chemicals multiple times a day. Rachel Feltman, Articles Editor at Popular Science. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media. 
at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.